Well, welcome everyone. We're going to do just a touch of review because we're going to get through most of chapter 4 in Ephesians today. Um, but we have previously done the first six verses, but it's extremely important in the conversation for Ephesians because basically the entire chapter is going to be kind of modeled around these six verses. If you remember way back when I introduced this book, chapters 4 through 6 are the Paranesis section, which is the ethical teaching. Okay, So this larger body, we've gone through three chapters of basically uh, Thanksgiving section and, and love and, and so many wonderful themes that we've seen. But now Paul is really going to start speaking to the Ephesians, telling them something new and commanding them, exhorting them to do or not do certain things. Um, when I studied through this chapter, I believe there's 21 different commands. So, we're, so you really see that quickly. When you see an ethical section, you're going to see Paul tell you a lot of things to do or not do. Verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And John had highlighted the repetition of one. Right? The theme of unity is so obvious here, and it's so deeply important, and it's something we're trying to live out on Wednesday nights. Right? I mean, that's one of the steps we're trying to do from this passage is say, how do we become a little bit more united, so hopefully people will get to join us on Wednesday nights to uh, share our stories and to learn what God has done in our past and in our present and what we may think he might do in the future. But Paul is clearly telling the Ephesians that they need to be united in Christ, and the only way to find unity is in Christ. So he is going to begin to expound upon unity and maybe even give us some indications of what it might look like to be more united. And so he says in verses 7 and 8, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So what's really fascinating right off the bat, you have this very universal picture of unity, right? It's all the body of Christ. Everyone, everyone who is a believer worldwide is united into the headship of Christ, right? It's a very universal picture. And yet the next thing he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given. So one of the frequent questions in unity or concerns for people is, if we're supposed to be united, does that mean I lose my culture or my language or the way I relate to God? Or There's a real concern about our individual lives. Like what happens in unity? Do we get washed out? And, and so something like this very quickly, he's going to say, but to each one of us, more individually, right? And God is going to give gifts to different people. And, and there's a part for the individual to play within Christ, even though as a whole, we are supposed to be united. Okay, So it may seem small, but it's really fascinating that you have that uh, juxtaposition of a universal concern and a more individual concern. John has also briefly mentioned this idea of grace. And of course, grace, the primary meaning is going to be the means for our salvation, right? God's unmerited favor. But a secondary meaning that's really important in this passage is the idea of the ministry that we have been given. So even the fact that we are able to do ministry is a grace of God, that he would even involve us in his work in this world, right? And so part of the grace is the ministry we have been given. So that's also really important, and that's, we've already seen this in chapter 2, right? It's by grace you have been saved so that we can do the works or ministry that God prepared in advance for us to do. So 
the outworking of salvation, the grace of God, which is something we can't earn, is a life that does good works, which God has prepared for us, right? These things go hand in hand, okay? So our activity, our action, should follow from God's grace. So this is still a little bit of review. Now we're going to start breaking into this psalm that Paul is quoting. So this verse 8 here, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people, is actually a psalm, and it's Psalm 68. 18, it says, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men. Does anyone notice a difference between the quotations? What is it? Right, it's you received gift from men. So in Psalm, you have this idea of there, the psalmist is lifting God up and saying, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. We're all good there. Then it says, you received gifts from men, right? So the Lord is the one receiving the gifts from men, and yet Paul has kind of reinterpreted this and put, and you gave gifts to his people. Yeah. Is there a specific ascension that this is referring to? Because I'm a little bit confused about when you ascended on high, some of a specific period. Right. I believe it's greatest fulfillment, and what Paul is going to do at least with this is to say this ascension is, is specifically when Christ rose into heaven. So that is part of the reason how we're going to understand some of this. You know, uh, It's too wide of a topic, and we aren't going to spend time on uh, a common problem where we say, how does Paul kind of reorient Scripture here, right? It says, you give gifts from men, um, and now it's he gave gifts to people. So Paul has kind of reinterpreted Scripture here. We're not going to go into the subject of Paul doing this, because this is actually rather frequent. It would be a great series. We might even do it sometime to do just a one or two week where we look at some of these things where Paul kind of takes... Old Testament, and then um, maybe reinterprets it in light of Christ. And that's what seems to be going on here. So Paul seems to mean Christ's ascension into heaven. Okay? And so that's, and we'll even, we'll expound a little bit more on that. But part of this is because of Christ's ascension, we have something powerful, and then the gifts giving to men is going to play off Acts 2, where Pentecost comes and gives gifts to his people. But now, so let's try to even pick apart, what does this mean? Because it sounds like, a, to me, it sounds like a very strange quotation of a psalm. You know, it doesn't jump out to me because Paul is transitioning, right? He has the unity, he says, to each one grace has been given us. And that's why it says, when he ascended on it high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Some of it connects for me and some of it doesn't. Um, so when we look at the word captives here, this idea of captives is not the only place it comes in Scripture. We see 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So we have this idea of Christ leading us. And again, when we look at this Christ triumphal procession, we're going to see again kind of this idea of the resurrection, maybe even the second coming. Right? Like Christ leading those who are victorious, those who are gathered into Christ together. So we have been taken captive in that sense where, again, what's so important about this, we've seen throughout Ephesians, is how much God is in the acting position. Right? God is acting. God is the one who gathers up. We are his captives. It doesn't seem like we are doing a whole lot. It seems like God is leading us and doing the vast majority of the work. Right? God's sovereignty is really promoted here. Okay? So another really important part is this ascended. And Paul actually takes a couple verses right after quoting the psalm to explain. And so he says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? 
He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, there are some interesting ideas of this ascension and descension language. And there's some difficulty with it because people are going to kind of disagree on, on what, it, what does that descended to the lower earthly regions means. So does anyone have any idea descended to the lower earthly regions? Yeah. Uh, I would say that he who ascended is he who uh, died and was buried. Okay. So it means so just buried in the ground, okay? I think it's, we can say with relative certainty that it's not a literal descending from a higher place. I think it's more of a symbolic, like coming from a high place, being at the right hand of God to being lower and earthly with a limited understanding and a limited mental capacity. So that sort of descension of coming to a place of equality with man as opposed to being in a place of equality with God. Good. I, mean, that um, I always took it as something like Hades or something like, like that, but, but he was just kind of, he mentioned, or he made note of the term earthly, and I don't know if, if that, I, it, more, it seems more like it is his descension from Godhood to humanity and to the earth, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily rule out Hades as well, because it's in context of taking captives, or leading captives away in his triumphal ascension. Good. Yeah, who needs Bible commentators, you know? I mean, that's basically what was just stated are the basic two positions. Um, so some believe that, like Jason had just mentioned, it could be even this dissension into Hades or to hell, some, something like that. And so we see that even in the Apostles' Creed, right? So who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And so there's this idea of when Jesus died upon the cross, what happened to him in those three days before he rose again. And there are many who believe that Jesus literally descended into hell to overcome the powers that be, um, and then, where it was, then rose again afterwards. Okay? So this is a strong belief for, for many. Now, some would argue, one, he may have needed to go there in order to pay full punishment for the sin that he took on, right? So that could still be there. And then also, though, is the victory of Christ, right? It's, not, it's definitely not an either-or. I mean, when you talk about um, different theologies for what happened on the cross and what happened in the resurrection, I mean, both of those are, are important. So they don't necessarily fight against each other. We should see you know, victory over sin and victory over death, and then we should also see the atonement factor. But not like he was down there like literally fighting some kind of a... I don't know, power or whatever to come back out. Like, that's what I don't... Well, and maybe it's partially, it could be facing death to its fullest extent. And that's part of it, even with the Apostles' Creed. I mean, they might take a verse like this and say this, but it's, it's definitely a theological statement where it can be difficult to figure out, okay, what are we basing this off of or what to what extent? I mean, I have one more verse that kind of, again, might hint at Christ doing something. So it says, 1 Peter three eighteen through 28, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So a really strange passage even, and one that is difficult, one that we're not going to go into depth, but, you know, people might make the case, okay, so maybe Christ, you know, did this to the imprisoned spirits, you know, after he died on the cross, he went down, ministers to imprisoned spirits, and then rises again. I mean, it's very difficult to actually flesh that out, what's Christ actually doing there, what do we make of this, you know, I mean, not easy stuff, you know, and not, not real clear, and not a whole lot, 
Peter doesn't go into much explanation. He just kind of says it in passing. And that's some of the difficulty with this idea of what do you do with this dissension to the lower earthly regions. You know, so this is one side of things. This is the idea of Hades or hell that Christ descended into. The other half is what uh, Ray mentioned, a few others, is the idea of the incarnation. Some have even posed Christ's descent at Pentecost, and some have posed Christ's uh, descent to the church. Um, I believe Christ's incarnation is probably the strongest of those positions. So, and especially when you look at lower earthly regions, part of the Greek there is it's a genitive, so of the earth. So it could just simply mean, like we see in Philippians 2, right? Jesus, who had all glory alongside the Father in eternity, came down to heaven. And that's the major humbling. And that's the lower earthly regions because he came to the earth. Of course, if you look at the cosmic perspective, the earth can certainly be described as lowly. Okay? So it could be simply a reference to Christ's incarnation. Um, and that seems to be even the stronger case. And the emphasis, of course, because back to our, our psalm there, is when he ascended. It's really not on the dissension, even though Paul brings that into discussion. One who ascends also descended, right? So he seems to be kind of comparing this idea of Christ has been risen up in his resurrection, but he also descended from on high to come to the earth. And, and so that's where you see this, this humbling that we see in Philippians 2 and John 13 and many passages where Christ's earthly ministry was extremely humbling for, for <laughs> Jesus who was God and man. Okay? Um, so a little bit tricky, a little bit uh, difficult, but um, the purpose is certainly glorifying Christ, right? He's the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Okay, now, continuing along with the passage, and this really ties into the, he gave gifts to his people, right? So that last statement from that psalm is extremely, extremely important because Paul is going to discuss that as well. And so he says in verses 11 through 13, now 11 through 16 is one long sentence in the Greek which is pretty fascinating. So in your NIV, in different translation, you know, they break up the sentences, but it's an entire sentence that's six whole verses. So he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, this is a really important passage for uh, lots of denominations, for lots of churches. And there's much discussion on what are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And one of the very common questions is, are these functions or are they offices? So, for example, there are even churches who will base their church structure around this. As in, we have you know, uh, a few apostles who started our church. We have a few prophets at our church. Uh, we have some evangelists that go out. So, so it's defined as an office, right? Like this is our evangelist. This is our apostle. This is our pastor and teacher. Do you understand that? So that's the office version. The other idea is that these are functions. So first of all, there could be some overlap. And second of all, one is not necessarily like a prophet, even if they prophesy. Right? It's something, it's a gifting. It's more, uh, you know, one of the things that I, God has given to me, one of those gifts to his people, is this idea of prophecy. So, I don't know if you guys have heard that argument or the differentiation, um, so I'm going to pose that question. Do we think these are describing offices or functions? Or if there's any clarification needed, that's fine too. What are the thoughts? Yeah? I was just going to say that um, 
like maybe it's both, um, that we don't have to look at it so separate or distinct, but um, that it could be, like, we could use it for both purposes. Right, there might even be some that lend themselves more to an office or more to another. Yeah, go ahead, John. It would be strange to think that he just uh, didn't mean them at least in some way as an office because they seem to first follow kind of a chronology of like the apostles to the prophets to the evangelists and then the pastors and teachers like he's describing that. But also like Paul spent a lot of time sometimes defending apostleship, like his apostleship. So it would be strange if after spending so much time defending it, he'd say, yeah, but really it doesn't matter right, at all. So, I mean, it seems like they would matter somewhat to him in some way. Yeah, John's stealing my material here. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's important because uh, one of one major commentary, Lincoln, who does the word biblical, um, he basically says exactly that. The apostles and prophets are going to have a little bit more uh, emphasis in the past and, and something that... As John said, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 12, it's basically a three-chapter defense of his apostleship, right? Because there are many who question Paul, like, well, you know, he, first of all, he's a Pharisee before Jesus. Like, he has this, you know, amazing conversion. A lot of people were very hesitant to say, so who is this guy? Like, why should we be listening to him? And Paul has to continually defend, like, no, I had a legitimate experience with the resurrected Christ um, that has given me my apostolic uh, ministry and authority, not one that I earned or did something for. Christ did something quite amazing. Um, but don't discount my ministry. And don't discount my apostolic authorship and authority. So um, that's exactly one of the ideas is these apostles and then prophets. Of course, you have, I mean, look at our Old Testament. There are numerous books that are in the prophets um, that he's certainly playing upon. And yet, following Paul, you're going to have people more like evangelists who are going to go out and build the church in various areas. Pastors and teachers where... Uh, Paul would frequently establish a church, raise up a leadership like a pastor, somebody who's going to uh, fill leadership in that thing, and he'd move on, right? And so there seems to be a chronological transition here as well. That's good. Um, I do also like Natalie's uh, perspective, though. There is some difficulty. People get into arguments over these. That's why, it's actually, that's why I brought this up, where, yeah, if you have too much neatness to them or too much like this is only an office or only a function, that's where people tend to get at odds with one another. And, and we end up leading more towards disunity than unity. Okay? Because it can become, can become very divisive. Um, I do want to just briefly kind of hit each one of them um, real quickly to kind of just fill in some background information um, on each of these. Because a lot of these terms are, have some wide range of meaning. So apostles are going to be used in different ways. So one, it's like God, um, uh, God's agent who sent out. God's agent is one form where apostle sometimes is the word used in scripture. Um, a foundational minister of the early activity with Christ. An envoy of the church at times in scripture is called an apostle. It's at one point in Romans chapter 16, it's used of a woman of describing Junia. So you have these different various uses of the word apostle. That's why it's not so easy to just say, well, this is what an apostle is. However, as John pointed out, in most cases, it's referred to the limited group of individuals who had special authority and role, right? Like Paul and Peter and John and these who were interacted with Christ and were given this apostolic authority. Okay, so that is the primary meaning, but it's just good to note uh, this word is used in various ways in Scripture. Okay, so again, I like what Natalie had said because if you hold on to it a little too tightly, it can cause some problems. 
Second, prophets. Um, we again have a breadth of meaning. Um, you have people who have that foundational role alongside the apostles. You have prophets de- designated by the local body or church. Um, you also have people having prophetic utterances, right? And you have that in chapter 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. Yet, a lot of times, just because someone had a prophetic utterance doesn't necessarily mean they were a prophet. And it's also helpful to remember prophecy, a lot of time we think of predicting future events, right? And that is there, but it's the vast minority of the use of a prophet. Prophets are those who explain God's will, who reveal something, who re-explain something they're supposed to know, who speak into the culture and into the time. So it's no, usually it's not a future event. Okay? Usually it's revealing God's will to others who have gone astray, who have uh, forgotten the Lord. Okay? So that's kind of the idea of prophets. Evangelists. Again, you have people who are probably going to be a bit more starting the church, um, maybe even preaching to people who have not heard uh, the words of Christ. But we don't want to have too narrow there, too, because sometimes uh, evangelist Philip was called an evangelist, right? And he spoke to a lot of believers in uh, Jerusalem, right? So, again, you're going to have some crossover, but they're usually speaking of, um, sometimes they're speaking of itinerant preachers, sometimes they're not. And then finally, you have the pastors and teachers. And what's interesting there is you have the definite article, right? You have the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then you have the pastors and teachers. So some argue, is this one term? Is this two different people? Is it a teaching pastor? You know, does that make sense? So it could, some argue, this is a teaching pastor. And some argue, no, there's a little bit of separation between pastors and teachers, right? They're, they're two separate things, or there's some overlap. And I think the best way to understand is that there's some overlap here, okay? Because pastor is going to play off the word um, that means shepherd, right? And so we see in John 10, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd, right? And so that same word is, is for a pastor. So you're going to think of nurturing ministry, caring ministry, things like that. Yeah, right. Just out of curiosity, is teacher going to be the same word as rabbi, like what's used to refer to Jesus in the Gospels, or is it a different word? Um, it's probably a different word. Um, I think they use uh, rabbinai. For rabbi, teacher is going to be uh, didasco or didaske. So um, I think, though, at times Jesus might be called both. I'd have to, I'd have to see it. But Jesus was certainly called the, the teacher. So and teaching authority in, in, in the faith is going to come from Christ, who is our great teacher. Um, I think Lincoln said something here that's worth noting. Is simply there's. It's good to see some overlap here. There were few pastors who didn't teach, and yet there were going to be some teachers who weren't pastors. Right, so that's why we give John the pass. We don't call him our pastor. You know, he still gets to skate. Um, there's a little bit of divide. There's some overlap. Yeah, John likes that. <laughs> so um, there's some of both here. But it is good to see the pastoring is going to emphasize some of that caring, nurture ministry, um, and teacher is going to be very uh, is going to be a little bit more specific on you know doctrine and proclamation and interpretation of scripture and those things. So we see how these functions kind of work together. And we see when you look at this list, how many of those things kind of apply to Paul, right? I mean, he's a mix of a lot of these things, okay? So that's why it is neat to hold these a little bit loosely and not get too tight about them. Let's move forward because as Ray said, the point of these is to equip his people for the works of service. And so I want to pose one more question that's also really, really under, uh, really crucial to the understanding of clergy and laity, Okay? So are these people, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, 
Are they supposed to do all three of these things? And the three are to equip his people for works of service, that the body of Christ may be built up, and we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Now, is this left in the hands of the clergy, or is this something that other people are also supposed to be a part of when I say, you know, built up in the faith, um, built up until we all reach unity? So, is this something that only clergy is supposed to do, or is this something that others, and this is really important because churches do disagree on this, and it makes a huge difference in our practice and in the way we structure our churches. So, any thoughts? When you look at this, is this saying that those leaders are supposed to do all the work, or is it different? Yeah. Well, say at least in this translation you have on the slides, it looks like, first, it's really Christ doing the work, because it's not saying that, that those people do it. It says that Christ gave them so they can be equipped. And then it seems to be kind of a cause and event, or, sorry, cause and effect chain where the works of service unify and build up. Yeah, that's important, and that's good. So, so Christ has given the gifts to these people, but are they supposed to be the one doing the work? It seems like what it's saying is that he's given these people, or these, these individuals, to equip his people for service. So the point of gifting these people is to equip all of his people for works of service. Um, I see his people is not referring to all the people that he just listed, but including the laity and the clergy. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, uh, of course, it's going to tend to fall a little bit more um, closely with Protestant or non-denominational uh, groups that they're going to say that type of response. Yeah. I think I read this part as a, maybe a different way, not a different way than what's been said, but a different emphasis. Sometimes when we sit in here and we're always talking about these passages in such depth or any subject that we take on in such depth, I feel that there's people in the room who are like, shouldn't we just be doing service? Shouldn't we just be loving God, right? And this passage actually answers that in part. Like it says that Christ gave these offices or functions, whichever one, to equip people so they could do service and so that they could become united. And in, in not just any unity, but he even says in faith and knowledge, it basically become mature. So he's almost saying like, God's gift to the church so that they could eventually have service and be united and become mature was the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And he's setting it up in a way that when I read this, I thought, this is really key for us as exes. Like, we sometimes wonder why we spend so much time being equipped in knowledge and think, I feel like we should, we're just talking and it's all going to our head. And I think that's a good critique to watch for. But in this case, it's actually making a defense that if you want to serve, you want to be unified, you want to be mature, you go through that process. Uh, and that actually equips you for service. That service without that is unequipped service. It's kind of unfocused and un-Christ-like in some weird way in saying this passage. I would add that um, in, 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 I think, a different translation, it, it actually specifies that those gifts are given to some some have the gift, not not everyone. Some have the gift of apostleship. Some have the gift of, of, of the, the prophetic voice, etc. Et and um, the only reason that I mention that, and just to kind of go along with John, is um, you know there's something that there's a process of discernment that should go into these types of activities of whether or not you say you're an apostle or a prophet or pastor and teacher. Clearly, there's a process where we sit back and we say, 
with some kind of discernment and some kind of thinking or some kind of spiritual discipline to say, well, not everyone has that ability. And, and, and I think if that's something that you enter into or you desire into, then there's a, there's a process that goes into that, that that helps you to become more intelligent and more pastoral and more of a teacher. And, and that's important. Those are important skills. Those are the kind of people you want to have leading flocks. Right. People who have engaged in that process. Certainly. And leadership is definitely in the forefront here. You know, um, I have agreed with mostly what's been said, the idea of the people are gifts themselves to the church. And their purpose is to equip his people for the works of service. And then so that everyone, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So I think it is the point, church leadership is there to equip others to do work. It's not there to do the work and to have people sit passively and say, good, I'm a part of this church, these people do these things, I'm good, I go home and I, you know, I don't have to do it because the clergy has done whatever needs to be done. You know, and, and that's, that's an important distinction because that can seep in you know, to, hey, uh, I mean, we see this all the time in, in the church today, right? People go to service and they come home and that's, you know, good. I check. I've, I've done my God time this week, you know, or, or this day or whatnot, right? And so that, that would be a very false understanding of what it means to be united, what it means to serve together, what it means to being built up in unity and maturity, okay? I think that's the importance uh, of this passage. Any last thoughts? Um, and he's going to continue, remember, because verses 11 through 16, the entirety of it is a single sentence. And so it says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Really important. So Paul continues along this idea of being an infancy, of being tossed back and forth. So the point of pastors and teachers and evangelists, these people, like John said also, is that we wouldn't be blown about by false teaching, right? I mean, there is a doctrinal focus here, right? There is a... We learn the ways of Christ, we teach the ways of Christ, and right thinking is going to lead to right action, right? And so, without it, we're going to be very immature. If we haven't learned Christ, and there is a knowing sense here, it's not just head knowledge. It's much deeper than that, right? It's in a real knowing of Christ relationally. And yes, we are taught his ways, and, and so that we will hopefully not be blown about. And, of course, Paul is writing to a church, an area where there are lots of false teachers, where Gnosticism, all kinds of different problems are coming about, where people are, yeah, really undermining the church. And so this idea of right teaching is extremely important. We see again for him in verse 16, for him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting limit, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We see that we are grown, we are the body, right? And Christ is the head. Um, And we are growing into the head, which is Christ. And this middle section, which is not... So instead, speaking the truth in love. Okay, what's really neat there is actually in the Greek, it's truthing in love. He changes the word truth, which is normally a noun, of course, and changes it to a verb. He changes it to truthing in love. Because Paul is shifting us into ethics, right? He's shifting us into how are we supposed to live. And speaking the truth in love is extremely vital to what it means to be Christian. 
to live a Christ-like life is to speak truthfully in love. And in that way, he's giving us some hints at how do we become united. One of the things we do, we speak truth in love. That's what we do. And we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Right? So I want to highlight that speaking truth in love is extremely important. Um, and it's something for us to question here and now is, you know, how often do we do that? And um, how are we growing in truth? And I know in some of the closest relationships I have, I'm learning how easy it is to not fully be truthful. Right? Or it's easy to be truthful without love or loving without truth. Right? I mean, it's, you have to hold them together. So that verses 1 through 16 is one section. And the next section is verses chapter 4, 17 through 5, 2. So he's going to really get into unity. Again, it's really all around those first six verses. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. So Paul is now, he's now going to start really giving uh, commands, right? You must no longer live as the Gentiles, right? I want to highlight thinking, futility of their thinking, darkened in their understanding and ignorance. Really important theme for Paul. Um, he refers to it, if you look at Romans chapter 1, right, one of the main things that God gives people over to is their depraved mind, right, a futility of thinking. John made a great statement. We learn so that we aren't going to be futile in our thinking, okay, so that we aren't going to be immature, that we aren't going to be darkened in understanding. We have to be taught the ways of Christ and come to know him relationally. Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's the renewal of our mind that needs to take place each day. Right? And in Christ, that's an extremely, extremely important idea. And the hardening of our hearts, which is losing sensitivity to God's voice, to God's scriptures, to God at all. When we stop caring about pleasing God and obeying God, that shows a hardness of heart. There are going to be people, if we are going to be a community that speaks truth and love, that means you will be offended at times, right? That means if we're actually doing that, you will hear something that hits at your sin, that annoys you, that even takes a jab at you. But if it's done respectfully and lovingly, that, you know, some of that offense is simply because we, we just like to live the way we like to live. And we don't like to hear differently, right? And that uh, distance from maybe someone speaking truthfully into your life that's the hardening of your heart. Because God will use people in your lives to say hard things and to say, you know what? This is not lining up with what it means to follow Christ. And I'm here to love you and care about you and I'd even like to walk with this through you. But what you're doing, this activity is not right. Okay? And, and when we resist that, we're, we're usually resistant to that. Right? And that's a hardening of heart. And, and that's what Paul is you know, telling, don't live as the Gentiles do. Don't live as these people who are, are totally, they've hardened their hearts to God. They have a futility in thinking. They aren't wanting transformation. They aren't wanting any of that. Right? Don't live that way. He says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if 
anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Many of us have heard this, and many of us question, what, what is that old and new, what is that really like? A lot of us came to faith at a very young age, so it's even hard to say, you know, is there supposed to be this big difference between you know, before coming to Christ and, and afterwards? And, and the answer, Paul is saying, yeah, there is. Because the old self, this way before Christ, it is corrupted by deceitful desires. Our desires are uh, confused. Um, and when we are gathered into Christ, we put on Christ, right? So it's not earning salvation. Christ has done these things, and yet we are called to participate here. We are called to put off the old self um, and put on the new self. And so the primary vehicle of that is going to be confession and repentance, right? I mean, this is one of the ways where we should be continually with our close friends and family members, um, having those conversations of, you know, what are there in my life that, that, that needs some transformation, <laughs> that needs some work, because we need, one, God wants us to work through that in community, and he wants us to do that w- with him through the attitude of our minds. It's good. Um, there's a few um, applications I kind of end with. We're going to stop in the middle of this just because I know this has been a lot. Um, we're exhorted to live into the unity Christ has established. So we've hit this. It's, it's not up to us for unity. Christ has established unity, right? And he's gathered us up into him. But what we are supposed to do also is maintain it, right? Is to live lives that, that look to, you know, um, relate well with other believers and, and to grow into maturity, okay? Alongside that, we are all called to build the church up together. So that means you can't stand on the sidelines. That's not okay. The point of leaders in the church is to equip you. So hopefully people like John and, and the pastors at your local churches, um, hopefully those people are equipping you to go and live your life for Christ and to build the church together. So does that mean that, you know, that every single person has to serve in some ministry in the church, like in the or institutional church? No, it doesn't. Because the church is the body, is the people, right? It's all of us, okay? So there are some who are going to be out in the secular world. There are going to be some who do ministries in the church. There are going to be some who are in both. We are both in the secular world and also serving in the church. But to sit on the sidelines is not an option. That's what's clear here. Okay, so we are all working together. There, there's not supposed to be anyone who's passive. And, of course, we know when we think of our giving trends in the church, when we think of who actually serves, usually it's a small minority who do the majority of the work. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. So even on a more practical term for us in Exodus, there are small ways to serve that we do together, like Door of Hope. And there's still a majority of people who do that where, where most don't. And I'd really encourage us to say, hey, if you haven't done that, you can't be on the sidelines on this. This is something as a body that we're choosing to serve with. And it's a wonderful opportunity. Right? In the same way, we want to give together. We want to do the works together. Okay? It's not, and Wednesday nights, right? There are simple ways to serve, like doing the dishes. Um, really simple. I know it sounds so funny to bring up these like minute details like this, but one of the most powerful acts of service that I've experienced um, on one of my mission trips was our, our leader who was like 55, um, we had a team in the Dominican Republic and we would have lunch at our mission house every day. And he would be the la- what he would do every day is he would serve the drinks and eat last. And there were numerous occasions where if people overate, he wouldn't have lunch. And especially when you're doing ministry work in 95 degree heat with humidity, that's going to make you very angry to not eat. Um, and he did that, and he didn't say anything, and he told me very at the very end, and I really recognized, wow, he literally did that every single day, never skipped a beat. 
You know, and it's a very minute, small thing that you would think, what's the big deal? It's like, no, that, that's service. Like, that's what it is. It's looking at these small opportunities that most people will never see and doing them. So please, let's not be on the sidelines. Three, truthfulness and love. Um, they need to guide our ethics. Um, so we're going to, I stopped in the middle of the passage. John is going to hit this more next week uh, because Paul has some more things to say about uh, being in love and speaking truthfully and not letting unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So we are going to spend more of our time, but it should really question how do we speak with one another, how do we live with one another, how do we act. Um, is truthfulness and love guiding our actions? Um, to what degree, right? I mean, we are going to fail at times, but are we people who are becoming more truthful and more loving towards God and towards each other? And finally, we need to open ourselves to Christ for daily renewal. There's, there's no way around it. And so hopefully we need to have a, a thriving relationship with Christ where, as Romans exhorts us to do, is not conform to the ways of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's going to take on many things as prayer, as studying scripture, as having deep theological conversation. There are so many applications to how we might be renewed in our mind. But we need to see that as a command, as not an optional thing. It's not optional to, to simply sit and do nothing. You know, the Lord wants a greater life for us, and it's a great thing to be renewed by God. It's such a grace and such a wonderful thing. And amidst our failures, God's grace is good, and it will lead us, and, and he gives us forgiveness and, and love and growth, and, and he'll lead us along that path. But I just hope that we don't fall under hardness of heart, right, where we just don't care about growing. It's just not that important. There's better things to do. You know, that's what I hope that we aren't under. So hopefully we can maybe even reflect on these things and hopefully there's some growth because of it. Let me go ahead and pray for us. I know it's been a lot, a lot of heaviness. So, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Um, God, we thank you for the exhortation to be united in you. God, we thank you for the unity that you brought in us, that you did that through the cross, uh, that we are gathered into your body, that we are members of one another. And it's such a great thing. Lord, I love these people in this room, and it's wonderful to serve together and, and, and know one another better. God, I pray that you would help us to love you with all our hearts and all our souls, our minds, our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. So, Lord, we need your grace um, as we uh, walk forward. Um, we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.